This episode does deal with the sexual assault and murder of children. While not graphic, this can be upsetting for some listeners, and listener discretion is advised. In 1986, two little girls were found in the woods in Brighton, murdered. Nicola Fellows and Karen Hathaway had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and left just a quarter mile from their homes. Their accused attacker was arrested weeks later, but it wouldn't be until a major change in English law and the advancement in DNA technology that justice would be found. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me for our last episode is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. This is the last episode that I will be on before Charlie takes over with her new podcast. I just want to thank everyone for the last almost three years. I will miss you all. It's been a great journey. I have learned a lot It is going to be a hard episode to get through, but yeah, I just want to say thank you. I've loved meeting everyone I've got to meet. I appreciate the friendships I've made, and I'm sure I'll see you all around somewhere in some form. It is bittersweet to be on our last Insight episode. I really feel like Insight has opened so many doors for both of us. I think that what comes next is going to be amazing, but it's also hard and kind of sad to shut this door. But let's go ahead and get into the episode. Nicola Fellows and Karen Hathaway were nine-year-old best friends. They lived only three doors down from each other and played together as often as possible after school because they attended different schools, so they didn't see each other all day. So they'd get home from school, and the first thing they'd want to do is see each other. But Karen's family wasn't always comfortable with Karen and Nicola's friendship. They kind of gave the side eye to some people that the fellows allowed in and out of their home. Though the girls' mothers, they were friends. So there wasn't animosity between the families so much as just some concern. Nicola was an outspoken little girl, and Karen could be a bit cheeky as well, which are her mother's words. Nicola was friendly, and Karen was pretty sensible. She had a good head on her shoulders. The girls lived in the Moolscombe housing estate in Brighton, which is an economically and socially disadvantaged area with pretty high crime rates. In the 1980s, drugs were rampant in the area. The girls came home from school on October 9th, 1986. After Nicola had changed out her school uniform, she heard a knock at her door. Three people were standing there. One was a 20-year-old man named Russell Bishop, who was a friend of her father's. With him was a 16-year-old named Marion Stevenson and a third friend of theirs named Tracy Cox. Russell lived with his pregnant girlfriend Jenny and their one-year-old child, but he was seeing Marion on the side. Nicola must have overheard this gossip from the adults, or maybe she saw something. Anyway, Russell was there to see a man named Dougie, who lived with the Fellows family at the time. Dougie wasn't home, so Nicola said he wasn't there and slammed the door in Russell's face. Once the door was closed, she yelled slag at Marion. Outspoken and cheeky indeed, even though Russell and Nicola's father Barry were friendly, Nicola's mother had warned her against Russell. He had a reputation for liking younger girls, and it sounds like the mothers in the neighbourhood weren't sure how young this interest went. So Nicola very likely didn't worry about getting in trouble for being rude to Russell and his young girlfriend. She was supposed to keep away from him. After Russell and Marion left, Nicola went outside to join a group of kids playing in a front yard of a neighbour's house. Later on, Karen went outside to join them. Her mother told her she could go out, but not for long since her tea was already in the oven. Tea meaning the meal, not the drink, obviously. 
When Karen came out, she and Nicola sort of paired off to play away from the other children. At 5 p.m., Nicola's mom looks out and she can see the girls playing with a roller skate in or near the road. And this is the last 100% for certain sighting of the girls, though there are a few other sightings that are really credible. One issue with all of the sightings, we see this a lot, is that no one was exactly standing there staring at their watch when they saw the girls. The times could be off by quite a bit. And in this case, the time is very important establishing when the girls would have crossed paths with the person who killed them would have to later be compared against people's alibis. Around 5.15, a patrolman at a public park about half a mile from the girls' homes saw two little girls playing in a tree. He believes they were Nicola and Karen. He talked to them, telling them, get down from the tree, they're going to get hurt. He interacted with them enough to not just get a description of them, but their clothing as well, and all of it matched. This park is called Wild Park. It is the largest nature reserve in the city with grasslands and woods. But it also wasn't considered the safest place for kids to be playing unattended due to the drug use in the area. Also, to get there from where the girls lived required them to either cross a very busy road or to take a subway tunnel over. Neither of these options were the ones the parents were okay with, and Nicola and Karen were definitely not supposed to be there. Then there were two sightings at 5.45 and then 6.15 of the girls outside of two different fish and chip shops and a few other sightings by those passing by. Many of those who saw the girls knew one or both of them, so they knew them on sight. Around 6.25 or 6.30, they bumped into a girl they knew from the neighbourhood named Michelle. Being 14, she was a little older than the girls. She told them it was getting too dark to be out. This would have pretty much been sunset, which is the time all the neighbourhood kids would be expected to be home. She even told them either to head home or to tell their mothers where they were, but they didn't seem like they intended to. Nicola said something to Karen that Michelle remembers being, come on, let's go over to the park. Around 6.30, a witness saw them near a police call box outside of the park. This was someone who knew Nicola, but not Karen. This is the last sighting of the girls. Their fathers were both not home, so their mothers first became slightly alarmed around 5.20. Karen should have been home already, so her mother, Michelle, started knocking on neighbors' doors to see if Karen maybe had gone inside to play somewhere. By 6.30, Nicola was expected to be home, so her mother, Susan, already knew Michelle was looking for Karen. The two went across to the park to look for them, so I assume... Someone must have told them that they had seen the girls over there. They called their names, didn't get any responses, so they called 999 to report the girls missing. The search began that night, and it continued into the next day. There was somewhere between 150 to 200 searchers. We're talking both police and community members. In the overnight hours, nothing of the girls was found. But there was a discarded light blue men's sweatshirt that had the word Pinto across it, and that was found near the park. It was on a path behind the railway station. The sweatshirt seemed possibly important from the start. First, there were red spots on it. Second, it looked like it had just been put there. It smelled of sweat, so they were thinking it had been recently worn but it was dry, unlike the dewy ground. So someone picked it up and put it on a fence, but it wasn't officially collected into evidence until daylight hours. So at daylight, they took the sweatshirt and initially put it in a brown paper bag, which was then taken to the police station, where it was then put into a sealed evidence bag. So this seems like a very specific and maybe weird detail for us to include, but this case ends up coming down to the handling of evidence. This is 1986, so we're on the cusp of DNA testing being used in criminal investigations. 
1986 and then 1987, they were pivotal years for DNA evidence being used in court. So while no one had yet seen a successful prosecution using DNA evidence, the importance of preserving evidence was understood. This wasn't the 1950s where they let everyone rifle through evidence and traipse through the crime scene. Then around 4 p.m. on October 10th, so we're talking less than 24 hours after the girls went missing, two older teen boys decided to look deeper into the woods at the park. They knew from growing up in the area that there were cutouts and dens of sorts where kids liked to play that were a bit off the path. They looked into one of these woodland dens and one of the young men saw an arm. It had a bright pink sleeve. They'd been told that Nicola was wearing this colour shirt. One of the young men stayed nearby while the other ran to find a police officer. When he ran out of the woods, he ran to the nearest constable he could find, an older man named P.C. Paul Smith. Now, P.C. Smith was talking to Russell Bishop at the time. Russell, like most of the community, had been out searching. He had been woken up at 2.30 in the morning during the door-to-door canvas, and he said he would help with the search the next day with his dog, Misty, who he had trained as a tracking dog. This turned out to be a lie about Misty. While I am sure she was a very good girl, she was not trained as a tracking dog. Russell was known to tell tall tales, things that would make him seem more important or special. Even his mother would later tell the media this. Anyway, P.C. Smith told Russell to run ahead with the young man back to the place where they thought they had found the girls and to keep everyone away from them until officers could get there. He only asked Russell to do this because he knew Russell could run quickly into the woods and secure the scene more quickly than himself. He was a little bit of an older police officer, and he was going to get some investigators over there. According to the two young men, Russell stood with them away from the bodies. He did act like he was about to go over to the bodies, and one of the other young men stopped him. They say he absolutely never touched the bodies. Russell, however, told police that he checked for their pulse since one of the young men made a comment about not knowing if they were dead or maybe simply just asleep. When pushed on this because it conflicted with what the other witnesses said, he backed off and said he actually did not touch them and just said that he wanted to seem the hero. He would later go back to his original story that he checked their pulses. He touched Nicola's neck and Karen's arm. The girls were found in what was described as an unusual position, with Karen lying across Nicola and her head on Nicola's lap. It's believed they were killed at the scene and then their bodies concealed in this den. The girls were removed from the scene with authorities careful to preserve any evidence. The fathers of the girls went and identified their bodies. An autopsy would show the girls were sexually assaulted and strangled. There was no sign of a struggle. One thing that they would not do was a temperature of the bodies. While this couldn't give an exact time of death, it would have hopefully narrowed things down a bit. And this would later become an issue in court, which is why I'm bringing it up. There was also a massive appeal for witnesses, and a few leads did come forward. Two witnesses saw two young men running away from the park around 7.30 p.m. the night the girls went missing. After they got away from the park, the two running split and ran in different directions. So that seemed a little suspicious. In the weeks before the girls were murdered, there were reports of a red-haired man in a blue car trying to convince children to get into his car. But the family said that they don't think either girl would have gotten into a car or even gone off into the woods with a stranger. Knowing their daughters, the families were pretty sure that this was done by someone they knew, someone who could have lured the girls into the woods after dark, someone they trusted. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. 
When I started my business, the one thing I kept in mind was that I wanted to treat every customer like family. To me, those are the kind of businesses that stand out. The first point of interaction most customers have with me is through my website. So I knew I needed a website that was user-friendly and comprehensive. Squarespace had everything I wanted. They had beautiful templates to choose from and tools that make it easy for me to give my customers exactly what they need, with the ability to manage my business, inventory, and sales completely on the go. Squarespace Analytics give me insight into where our customers are coming from, which helps me tailor our outreach to where it's most needed. And with a direct message feature on my contact page, my customers know I'm just a click away. I couldn't be happier with how Squarespace helped me get my business off the ground. Check out squarespace.com start for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code start to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com start and use offer code start. It's going to be a month until Crime Lines get started, so you guys are going to need something to listen to while you wait. Every Monday, the Parcast Network's podcast Survival will demonstrate the human spirit's ability to triumph over deadly adversity, and they also look at the lasting psychological aspects of living through a traumatic event. So what would you do to stay alive? Would you wade through snake-infested water? Would you cut off your own arm? Would you drink your own urine? When the stakes are life and death, you might be surprised at the lengths you'll go to to save yourself. I would surprise no one. I would be dead. My arm would still be pinned in a rock right now. But you're going to hear stories about people a whole lot stronger than me. A pilot and a passenger crash landing in the Yukon in the dead of winter. A man escaping from a North Korean internment camp. People trapped on sinking ships and many, many more. So how far would you go to stay alive? Search for and subscribe to Survival wherever you listen to podcast shows. And don't forget to rate and review and tell them that you heard about Survival here on Insight. Because both Karen and Nicola's father were only sporadically employed, they didn't have money for the funerals. The community they lived in, which were other people who struggled financially, They all collect funds for the girls' joint funeral. Nicola and Karen were then buried side by side. A week after the girls' murder, Crime Watch aired a reenactment in hopes this would stir more memories. They used two neighbourhood friends of the girls who resembled them and showed them walking through the area. The tips kept coming in and one of the names police heard over and over again was Russell Bishop one of the first people on the scene. He wasn't the only shady person in the neighbourhood who people pointed to, but his name did come up multiple times. And he also made an odd comment to a police officer during the search. He told a constable that he hesitated to help with the search because if he found the bodies, then he would be wrongfully accused of doing something to the girls. The assumption that they would be found dead this early in the search perked up the ears of the police. But then also the fear of being accused of a crime seemed out of place. Another thing that put Russell on their radar was that he was seen in a light blue sweatshirt on the night the girls went missing. When police showed the sweatshirt that said Pinto on it to his living girlfriend Jenny, She said it looked a lot like the one he owned. And then a witness came forward saying they saw Russell outside the park at 6.30. So all of this together was enough for them to bring him in for an interrogation. Russell had an explanation for his fear of being wrongfully accused. He said as he left to search, his father warned him, don't get involved because both he and his father had previous incidents of being accused for something they didn't do. In 1978, Russell's father was arrested in the Margaret Frame case. Margaret had been attacked while walking home from work through Stanmer Park, which is also in Brighton. She was later found buried in a shallow grave. And her murder is still unsolved today, though a lot of people suspect serial killers Peter Sutcliffe or maybe Peter Tobin in this case. And we talked about both of those in our Bible John episode 
which feels like a lifetime ago. As for Russell, he said he had been arrested in 1984 in the Brighton Hotel bombing. This bombing was by the IRA in an attempt to assassinate Margaret Thatcher and members of her cabinet while they were staying there. Now, it's not clear why Russell or his father were suspected for either of these crimes, but because of these two experiences, Russell said he was just at heightened alert about the possibility of a false arrest, and that's all he meant by his statement to the constable. The rest of Russell's interrogation is just a jumbled mess. His story would change. He kept insisting that he did touch the bodies. But the police confronted him with the statements of the two other young men at the scene who said that he certainly didn't. So then he backtracked and said that he didn't touch them. He knew the position the bodies were in, though the young men said that he never got close enough to see that much detail. But he did mention a very specific detail. He saw blood-flecked foam on Nicola's lips. Even if he had gotten close enough to check for a pulse, there is some dispute on if he would have seen this detail. The girls were found in a woodland den in a dense part of the woods. It would have been fairly dim even at four in the afternoon. Well, Russell's story changed here and there over the 13 hours he says he was being questioned. He never confessed. He claimed he was bullied by the police and was pretty much just telling them whatever they wanted to hear to get the questioning just over with. He said he was basically illiterate. He had poor reasoning skills at 20 years old and that he was just no match for the investigators. And that explains why his story changed. Russell was initially arrested on October 31st, so three weeks after the murders. He was then charged on December 3rd, 1986. It would be another year, December 10th, 1987, that the trial began. And some say that this case was clearly doomed from the start. So to start, when Russell's girlfriend, Jenny, was called to the stand to identify the Pinto sweatshirt, she recanted. She said, no, not Russell's. And this was key because the shirt had been linked to the crime scene due to fiber and pollen evidence. Fibers on the shirt matched fibers on the girls. And pollen from the underbrush at the scene also matched the sweatshirt. Though this is less conclusive, less persuasive to me, because pollen could have gotten there any number of ways. The sweatshirt was found on the ground not that far away. But unless they could link the shirt to Russell, it was meaningless at the trial, and Jenny refused to make that link. The second issue was the timeline. Russell had a spotty alibi for that night, but a few points could be nailed down. Russell's alibi stops at 5pm, then he is seen outside the park at 6.30. The prosecution decided to highlight this hour and a half gap and point to it as the time he committed the crime. Providing an exact timeline isn't required in a case like this, but it does help when you're trying to break down someone's alibi. But the truth is, is that the girl's time of death wasn't set. Their body temperature wasn't taken, but even if it was, it isn't that accurate nearly 24 hours later. While we know what happens to a body after death, there is no hard and fast timetable because there are so many variables. But generally and broadly speaking, a body will reach ambient temperature after 20 to 24 hours, so its likely temperature would have made no difference in determining time of death. And this goes for pretty much all of the ways used to determine time of death. What the prosecution did that was seen as a massive blunder in this case was that they matched the time of death to when the suspect lacked an alibi. That means they had to prove to the jury that this window was when the girls were killed. And the defense was able to put a big hole in this. A pathologist at the trial testified that the stomach contents of the girls put the time of death as between 7 and 8 p.m. And this was qualified by saying this isn't a terribly accurate way to determine time of death. But there wasn't any other forensic method used, so this could have swayed the jury. 
But what probably swayed the jury the most was that the girls were seen at 6.15, 6.25, and 6.30. And the 6.25 sighting included a conversation with someone who knew both the girls and is considered one of the more reliable of the sightings. Russell could not have lured them into the woods, assaulted them, strangled them, hid their bodies, and then popped out of the park in five minutes' time. It's just impossible. When the jury came back with their verdict two hours later, it was not guilty on both charges. The second verdict is barely heard, though, because as soon as the first not guilty was read, Russell's brother jumped over the railing to hug his brother and ended up scuffling with court officers. Russell's father was feeling faint and his mother was yelling about his heart. It was pure chaos. And I can't even imagine what Nicola and Karen's family were feeling. Not just the stress of the trial, but this not guilty verdict and the spectacle of the Bishop family. Barry Fellows immediately called for an inquest and there was a massive push for the case to be reopened. Russell is one of the more vocal people behind this cause. He knew that a not guilty verdict wasn't enough to completely clear his name and that many people still believe he was responsible. He said in a 1988 interview that he wanted this case resolved as much as anybody because it's the only way he can move on from this. The police felt they knew who killed the girls. He was acquitted and thanks to double jeopardy, there was nothing they could do about it. Investigating it more, it wouldn't do anything. So everyone went back to their lives. The fellows and the Hathaway family struggling with their grief and both couples would eventually divorce. And Russell says he dealt with constant harassment and even attacks as people believed a murderer was living in their community again as though nothing had happened. And then, in 1990, Russell Bishop attacked a little girl. This girl, who was only seven years old, survived by some miracle and was able to identify and testify against Russell. She was roller skating in her Brighton area neighborhood when Russell stopped his car. He grabbed her. He threw her in the trunk. So he then drove her to Devil's Dyke, which is a valley near Brighton, where he then sexually assaulted her and attempted to strangle her. Then he dumped her in some underbrush. So this might sound a little familiar, but this little girl was not dead when he left and she was found alive, even though he had left her there to die. Between her evidence and evidence at the scene, like his distinct tire pattern, they were able to successfully prosecute Russell for this. He was convicted of kidnapping, attempted murder, and indecent assault. Russell was sentenced to life with a non-parole period of 14 years. He would later apply for parole and be denied. He became one of the longest-serving prisoners for a crime other than murder in the UK. Although Russell initially denied the charges, he later admitted to the crime. The similarities between the two attacks are hard to ignore. The ages of the girls are similar. The abduction and taking to an isolated area is similar. And of course, the attacks are identical. And he left this little girl in an underbush, just like Nicola and Karen were left in. But Russell had been tried and acquitted in the case of Karen and Nicola's murders. And for 800 years, England had laws against double jeopardy like the ones in the U.S. So we're talking near absolute. Once someone was acquitted, case over. You don't get a second bite at the apple. But in 2005, it was announced that this law was changing in the U.K. The Court of Appeal could hear cases in which the accused was acquitted, and they can then send the case back to trial. And this double jeopardy law was retroactive, so it included past cases that had acquittals. The Crown applied to take Russell back to court in 2006, but the court said no. There was not enough new evidence to take him back to trial. You didn't get to just take everybody back to trial for no reason. You had to show that there was new evidence and that there would be a different outcome at the trial. But this case was about to take a sharp left. Though free to pursue the case against Russell Bishop, if they found new evidence, 
There was a surprise arrest in April of 2009. The Sussex police knocked on the door of Barry Fellows, Nicholas' father. He thought they had news about the case, but instead they arrested him on sexual abuse charges related to Nicola from before her death. And they then also arrested the lodger, Dougie. The charges actually stem from a statement that was made in 1988 by Marion Stevenson. Marion was the then 16-year-old girlfriend of Russell Bishop, in case you've forgotten. She told this story a few times over the years, and she was pretty consistent in her tellings. But she did have an obvious motive to make up the story. From the start, it would exonerate her boyfriend, who had been acquitted, but was still suspected and could still go back to trial. Basically, the story goes that a couple of months before the girls' murders, Marion was at the fellow's house visiting the lodger Dougie. She was with Russell, and the three of them were smoking pot. She went to the kitchen to get a glass of water and walked by the living room. She looked over at the TV that Barry and another man were watching, and on the screen was a recording of Dougie engaged in a sexual act with Nicola. She made this statement to police again in 2007, and this led to the 2009 arrest of Barry and Dougie. Barry was blindsided by it because he believed the investigation after Marion's first statement had cleared him. Both Barry and Dougie adamantly denied the charges against them. The police seized all of their electronic devices and found nothing incriminating. Barry issued a statement to the media saying he knew he would ultimately be cleared, and he was 12 weeks later. Charges against both Barry and Dougie were dropped. This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. It really did seem odd to me that Marion would make this statement again in 2007. Obviously, there was a motive in the 80s, but here we are 20 years later. So the only two answers I can come up with is either she was telling the truth and just could not stand that two men were getting away with what they did to Nicola, or this was related to the end of Double Jeopardy, or it was possibly related to Russell's parole. He had been eligible for parole for that attempted murder case, but he was denied, and he had another hearing coming up. So many wonder if the reason he was denied is because it's largely believed he murdered Nicola and Karen, which would make him a serial offender. If someone else could be tied to those murders and Russell was seen as innocent, maybe parole would be granted. With forensics having advanced so much in nearly 30 years, the Crown opted to reinvestigate evidence in 2014 and have key pieces of evidence forensically tested. The sweatshirt could be tested and several tape samples taken from the girls' bodies could be tested. The sweatshirt was linked to Russell and then to the girls through paint transfer. There were flecks of paint on the shirt that matched paint found at Russell's home and paint found on the girls' clothes and on Nicola's neck. Russell explained this away, saying that the police are the ones who caused the transfer. They examined the sweatshirt and the girl's clothes on the same table. Then his DNA was found on one of the tape samples, one found on Karen's arm. It matched Russell, but he went back to his 1986 statement where he said he touched Nicola and Karen to check for a pulse, even though the dependent witnesses at the scene said this didn't happen. This new evidence was enough for the Court of Appeals. On May 10, 2016, Russell was arrested again for these murders. At the time, he was still in prison for the 1990 attack. The trial began in October of 2018. The prosecution this time decided not to hold to that pre-630 timeline. 
I think it's pretty clear that this was the wrong timeline. They instead presented the evidence themselves that the girls were still alive at 6.30 and that they were seen. This was evidence that the defense used in the initial trial to get Russell off. And this is perfectly fine from a prosecution standpoint. They do not have to remain consistent in their theory of the crime. They are not bound in any way by what happened in the first trial. They just have to prove that the girls were murdered and that the evidence links Russell as the killer. And we've seen U.S. cases where there are two people being tried for being part of the same crime. The prosecution will present different theories of the crime to the different juries. They don't have to prove exactly how things happened in order to secure that conviction. In the John Duca case, which was one of our earliest episodes, we saw a prosecutor change the theory of the crime within the same trial. All of the key witnesses against John had slightly different stories, with one jailhouse informant having a widely different story than everyone else. All of it was admitted as testimony. Now, of course, the jury could see the widely different story as proof the informant wasn't telling the truth, but it doesn't make it so they couldn't convict. So here we have the prosecution getting a second chance at trying Russell and using his own evidence from the first trial for their side. They now argued that when Russell was seen outside of the park, he wasn't coming back from having killed the girls. Instead, they theorised that he had circled back and went back to the park, possibly when he saw the girls heading in there. This was just setting the stage because the real evidence against him was the DNA sample found on Karen's arm and the paint that linked the shirt to both the crime scene and to Russell. It certainly didn't help that they were able to establish a pattern using his attack on the seven-year-old girl just a few years later. While the initial prosecution did not secure a conviction, this case in 2018 was aided by the incredibly thorough job the original investigators had done. When the cold case unit took over the case, they had a solid base to work from. They didn't have to chase down people who were never talked to or worry about lost evidence. It was there. The families of the girls were in attendance at the trial with the exception of Karen's father. He had died in 1998 of a heart attack. The family says he just never recovered from losing Karen, and they think that stress directly contributed to his health issues. So a family sitting through a trial, it's hard. It's hard on any family. But in this case, Russell's defense decided to show reasonable doubt by pointing the finger at an alternative suspect, Nicola's father, Barry. And they knew this was coming, I'm sure. But it couldn't have been any easier to have to hear those old charges of sexually abusing your own daughter coming back up. Barry had been investigated on those charges twice, and he was cleared both times. But Marion testified about what she claimed she witnessed at the house in regards to this. And we already went over what she said, so I won't really get into it. But now she was saying this in open court. Marion could be cross-examined about these statements, which hadn't happened before. More telling, she could be questioned about a statement she gave back in 1986 about some other things that Russell had said. One statement was that a day after the murder, Russell wanted to have sex with her, but she was too upset about what had happened and his response was something to the effect of how she won't see him for much longer because he was going down for the murders. And then he asked her if she thought he did it. Being so soon after the murders and before accusations started flying, she was taken aback by this. She also made a comment to him about how awful the murders were, and she claimed that his response was that they deserved it, and he blamed the parents for letting them out so late. And if this wasn't enough, he told her how he had seen the bodies, and that he had commented that they looked so lovely lying there. Others on the scene testified about how unnatural the girls looked and how it looked like one of them was practically tossed against the other one. 
but here he is saying he thought they looked lovely. So Marion's testimony almost sounds like a wash. She said things that implicated Barry in some sort of abuse involving his daughter. But then she also testified to some statements from Russell that really do raise some eyebrows. Barry Fellows testified. He testified about his daughter. He testified about identifying her body. By testifying, this opened him up to cross-examination by the defense, and he was asked about the accusations Marion had made, but also about his alibi for the night the girls went missing. Barry said that after he had done some work at a home about 10 minutes away, it was odds and ends, handyman stuff, some gardening, I think he cleaned their pool, stuff like that. He took the bus home. He stopped at the butcher shop to buy a ham for dinner, and then he stopped at a friend's house. His lodger, Dougie, was with him at his friend's house, so that has been verified. And then he arrived home around 7.30. According to the defense, there is about an hour gap in Barry's verifiable alibi, and that this window would have been sufficient for him to have killed the girls. The defence also asked him about his previous violence against Nicola. Barry did admit he gave her a, quote, thick ear on one occasion, though his ex-wife testified it was more than once. Now, a thick ear means smacking someone on the side of the head. We don't have that phrase here or in the US, so Charlie had to look it up and tell me. The defence used their opportunities to cross-examine the girls' mothers as another chance to point the finger at Barry. Through the cross-examination of his ex-wife, Nicola's mother, we found out that she had been concerned that evening because she didn't know where Barry was. She also admitted to him hitting Nicola in the past in an incident where he broke her great-grandma's nose. Barry said he swung around and accidentally hit her. Susan, Nicola's mother, did not see the incident and her great-grandma did not press charges, so she just believed Barry that it was an accident. Then Karen's mother, Michelle, took the stand. One point in the case against Russell were his own odd statements made at the time of the girls going missing. We heard a lot of odd things Barry had said that Michelle was concerned about. Okay, in September 1989, nearly three years after the girls' murders, Michelle wrote a letter, and this was then used in court. In this letter, she talks about these odd things that Barry had said. On the night the girls were missing, so this was around 11.40 at night, Michelle saw Barry and told him she intended to search all night. He replied that there wasn't any more she could do, and the police were doing everything that could be done. Then he said she should go inside and get a good night's sleep, which is something he planned to do. Obviously, when your child is missing, this idea of getting any sleep at all, let alone a good night's sleep, seems like that person has no idea what you're going through. But Barry did know what she was going through because his daughter was also missing. Then after the girls were found, on multiple occasions, Barry would tell Michelle that Karen was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not that both girls were, just Karen, making it sound like he knew that Nicola was the target. Then he made another comment about Karen being lucky that she wasn't beaten first. Maybe if these statements came from a well-wisher, someone who didn't know how to express sympathy well, they would have just seemed awkward. But from the father of a child who was also missing and then also found murdered, Michelle seemed to have wondered at least a little bit about Barry and if he was involved. On Impact Statement, I interviewed a woman whose mother was murdered almost surely by someone she knew. And the daughter told me that she's pretty much convinced herself of everyone being guilty. She said if she sat there long enough and thought about it, she could probably convince herself that she did it. So this idea that Michelle was wondering about Barry and his awkward statements... This seems like a pretty normal thing for someone to have done and doesn't necessarily mean Barry was acting really, really guilty all the time. Another point the defense tried to make is that the girls wouldn't have gone with Russell anywhere. The truth is that the girls did not like Russell. They were familiar with him since he lived in the area and had been to their houses. 
But their mother had warned them from getting too close to him, and we know Nicola thought nothing of slamming the door in his face. So would the girls have willingly gone into the woods with Russell? And if they wouldn't go willingly, how did he manage to get them both in there by force without anyone hearing them scream? As we've established through the various witness sightings that a lot of people were out and about, and the park was even being patrolled by a constable or a park ranger, and the girls had no signs of being attacked physically, aside from the sexual assault, of course. It's pretty much assumed the girls were lured into the woods, and the defence argued that Russell would not have been able to get the girls to do that, but someone else they trusted would have. Barry. He could have told the girls it was okay to go into the park after dark, which was against their usual rules. I'm going to have to weigh in here with my extensive experience with nine-year-olds. Their impulse control, it's not great. Their reasoning skills are, let's just say they're emerging. They didn't like Russell, but they were familiar with him. I can see multiple ways he could have lured them into the woods. Tell a couple of nine-year-olds that there's a rabbit nest they could see, and they'll probably follow you. The defense really tried to play on the idea that these nine-year-olds would not have been lured by someone they didn't like, someone like Russell. But that's not my experience with nine-year-olds at all. Even people they don't necessarily like, it doesn't mean they feel unsafe. Another thing that was put forward by the defense was the motive. Barry, according to them, had motive to cover up this abuse that he was complicit with. But the defense would first have to prove that there was abuse. And the prosecution cut them off here very quickly by calling a pathologist to the stand who reviewed the original autopsies. There was no evidence that Nicola had suffered what Marion describes happened on the video she saw, which she says she watched a good two minutes of it. This pathologist said there would have been evidence had it happened a few months earlier, as Marion had said, but all of the injuries to Nicola happened at the time of her death. Russell took the stand in his own defense. He claimed he was an innocent man who was targeted by the police. They spent over 30 years investigating only him, and that tunnel vision means that they got it wrong. Russell told the jury his movements on the day in question. He had spent the day digging for bait to go fishing and attempting to steal a car from the Sussex University parking lot. He said he did see the girls at a distance as he walked across the park to get home. And he was wearing a blue sweatshirt, just not the blue sweatshirt in question. Then he bought some pot at a neighbour's home and went home himself. He did shower and wash his clothes because they were dirty from all this walking around and not because he was washing away evidence, as investigators believed. Then he ate dinner while watching the end of EastEnders. This would be nearing 8pm. It was around 11 that his girlfriend returned home from work with their son, who had been at a sitter's. The prosecutors agreed he saw the girls while walking through the park, and they believe he washed his clothes as soon as he arrived home. But that's about all they agree with here. Russell also had to try to do his best to explain how he wasn't a pedophile. That was the motive being presented, so they have to remove this motive from him. The sexual assault of the girls and then killing them to keep them quiet, that was the motive. The prosecution just had to vaguely gesture towards his seven-year-old victim, who he admitted by this point that he had attacked. That's proof enough he was a pedophile, but Russell says no. That wasn't his motivation for assaulting the seven-year-old. Russell said that he was repairing his brakes on his car after they had been purposely damaged. This had happened a number of times since his acquittal, according to him. It was part of an ongoing harassment campaign from people in the community who believed he did kill the girls and got away with it. So as he's fixing these breaks, he's getting more and more angry, thinking about everything everyone's been doing and how unfair it was, and that everybody thought he was a murderer. So he figured he might as well just do the thing that he was accused of. Remember, he was accused of raping and murdering children. 
So he then saw this seven-year-old girl just passing by, and he abducted her because he was angry, and he said he wanted to belittle and shame her. And he really tried to paint himself as the victim of some smear campaign, and that that's why he did what he did, and that's an adequate explanation. His argument was that what happened to the little girl was the fault of those who made him angry, and he merely channeled that through this attack. But then the prosecutors produced letters that Russell had written while in jail, waiting for his first trial. They were sexually explicit letters written to a 13-year-old. Russell claimed that he thought she was 15 and about to turn 16, yet one letter refers to her age when they met as 11 and insinuates that something happened because he refers to the first time. He knew where they met and could do basic math. There was no way he thought she was nearly 16. And it's possible that he had previously sexually abused her when she was a couple years younger. Russell kept insisting he was not a pedophile in spite of all of this. When asked for the definition of a pedophile, he said it was someone who believes they aren't doing anything wrong and that's not his case. Now, of course, this isn't the definition of a pedophile. Many pedophiles do believe they're doing something wrong when they molest children and even feel some deep shame about their sexual attraction to children. I don't think there is any situation that someone can rape a seven-year-old and claim they aren't a pedophile because they knew they were in the wrong. I don't think Charlie and I are taking a controversial stand here when we say that Russell Bishop is a pedophile. Whether he attacked and killed Nicola and Karen is what is in question. I think Russell proved through his own horrible actions that he is indeed a pedophile. I seriously cannot believe he tried to argue that he wasn't a pedophile. Another point made during the cross-examination was that Russell took the stand in that trial for the assault of the seven-year-old, and he denied he did anything to her. So here we are, and he's on the stand again with an incredibly similar case, again denying it, but saying the other time he denied it, he was lying. This is really destroying his credibility. Russell testified for a total of 90 minutes before the court took a break. When they came back from the break, Russell was back in the dock and not on the stand. He had decided he was done answering questions and he stopped. Shortly before the end of the trial, Russell opted out of attending the trial entirely. He said it was because he just wanted to go back to his regular prison. Because of the trial, he had been moved to a prison that was closer to the courthouse. And this is Belmarsh Prison. And he complained that the conditions were awful and he just wanted to go back to his regular prison. On December 10th, 2018, Russell was found guilty, 32 years after the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hathaway. He was given two life sentences and has a non-parole period of 36 years. He will be 88 years old before he's eligible for parole. That is our last Insight episode. Thank you guys so much for the last three years of support as we've grown as podcasters and as people. We are just so grateful for that. And please stay subscribed to this feed. My new show, Crime Lines, will be launching in May. It's going to just be me telling you the same types of stories I've been doing for the last almost three years. And I really think you guys are going to like the show. Whatever projects Allie takes on next, I'll be announcing them on the show as well. So I'll talk to you guys again on May 5th.